Well, good morning, everybody. Doesn't it smell good in here this morning? Can you guys can you guys smell the the smells coming from the kitchen? Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm hungry. Um, I am excited though because this week um, people across the United States will be celebrating. Well, that's not what I want. <laughs> We're going to stand and the sermon's over. We're going to stand and sing so we can go eat. Um, <laughs> that's all right. Um, we're going to be singing Days of Elijah at the end so you guys can get ready. Um, no, this week, uh, people across the United States will be celebrating Thanksgiving Day and Morning Hour Chapel is starting this morning. Um, after our service, of course, we have our annual Thanksgiving luncheon. And for those of you who are watching uh, the video, you can't experience the, the tremendous smells, the aromas that are coming from the fellowship hall this morning, but they're what you would expect from a Thanksgiving feast, turkey stuffing, uh, apparently like 20 pounds of mashed potatoes, I understand, no, not today, uh, <laughs> sweet potato casseroles, um, all kinds of other things, so many wonderful smells, and some of you are here this morning, I can see in your face that you're praying fervently for a short sermon so that we can go and taste these wonderful things. Uh, um, and I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> the first national day of Thanksgiving in the U.S. came in 1789. It was proclaimed by President George Washington. Washington started the proclamation by saying, Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to implore his protection and favor. And then Washington's proclamation then kind of delved a lot into the politics of what was going on in the world. The nation had come out of a war with England, had uh, established its independence, was working on establishing a government and developing the Constitution and all of these things. And uh, Congress and the president decided they that the nation should proclaim a day of thanksgiving to God. But giving thanks is not a new thing. And it's not just an American thing. The people of God from the very beginning have been encouraging each other. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And this morning I want to give you the opportunity, um, and, and I do this every Thanksgiving, so it shouldn't be a surprise to you, but I'm sure it will uh, sound like a surprise and nobody will want to do it. But I want to give you the opportunity this morning to give thanks to the Lord, to share with the church family the, the good things that God has done for you over the course of the past year. I have... Um, this microphone that I uh, can bring around so that the people at home can hear you uh, on the video. But I'd like to give you the opportunity, if you'd like, just to stand and say a few words about the things that God has done for you this year that you are thankful for. So many of you know our son's deployed. And every week I drive to New Jersey to the Lord of three hours. And I praise God for the safety that he's given me on the road, traveling the turnpike, back and forth every week. Um, we've just been blessed beyond measure. Thank you, Renee. I'm thankful that Ron and I found this church and we're happy in it and thankful for our family. 
Thank you. Oh, now the hands are going up. I'm thankful for my family and my friends and God's protection over them this whole year. And I'm thankful that we're able to worship freely. I'm thankful for my family, um, for my journey to wellness and getting well and um, being able to be the new youth director. The youth are amazing. I feel blessed every time we come together and I hope that we continue to grow um, our deeper roots in Christ. Thank you. Yes. The list is truly endless. Uh, if you follow my wife on Facebook, uh, you'll pretty much see everything. Our whole life's posted there. So, But uh, there's lots of good stuff happening, has happened, and I know will be happening in the future uh, with many things. So you know, we're, we're, we're just truly blessed. So, And she looked really like you were going to say a lot about her, and was, she, was, she was getting a little nervous. She didn't know what you were going to say. <laughs> I'm thankful for you all and, and Morning Hour Chapel. So um, we've had bumpy journeys uh, in the past and, and you guys and Morning Hour Chapel is just a huge blessing to us. And so we are thankful. I am thankful for you all. I thank God for the gift of salvation. And not to forget the blessing of such a wonderful wife. We always need to remember the blessings of a wonderful wife. <laughs> All right. Anyone else? All right. Thank you for those uh, who shared this morning. And uh, I just want to say that, you know, God is good all the time. And all the time we have uh, reason to give him thanks. And, and Psalm 34 tells us, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's a weird expression, isn't it? How many of you feel like that's a kind of a weird taste and see that the Lord is good? I mean, we can see that the Lord is good. We can hear that the Lord is good. We can even feel the Lord's goodness in the testimonies that we heard this morning. But taste? How do you taste God's goodness? Well, one of the things that makes Thanksgiving a special time uh, is the gathering of our family, our friends, uh, around the dinner table. How many of you will be uh, having at least one Thanksgiving meal with family and friends? How many of you will be having more than one Thanksgiving meal with family and friends? We do. We spend a lot of time with, with our families, um, eating a lot of good food. We spend a lot of time preparing those foods. Um, 
And I don't know about you, but I love the smell of Thanksgiving morning when the turkey's in the oven and the things are good and, you know, just all kinds of pies being baked. It's just a, the, the, the smells and everything, but it's nothing compared to sitting down and actually being able to taste the food. How many of you like to taste your food? Nobody likes to taste it. Okay, that's fine. Uh, I like to taste my food. Um, and I also love to, to just sit at the table and have good discussion and just be together. Um, our family often talks about what we've been thankful for um, over the course of the year. Uh, this year, uh, instead of baking a turkey, I'm going to be frying our turkey. Um, and uh, when I get it home on Tuesday, I'll be putting it in this brining solution. If you've never brined meat or brined a turkey, it's a really fun uh, activity that's really messy if you don't do it right. Um, Wendy would probably tell you that one year I was trying to uh, remove the turkey from a brine and the brine spilled all over the place and leaked through the floor down into the basement and, and it was a mess, but it tasted really good. Uh, and See, the problem is when I try a new cooking method, Wendy sometimes is a little resistant. Um, she doesn't like me to make changes to our food. Like the first time um, I, that I told her that I wanted to uh, grill all of our fajita uh, food on the grill instead of cooking it in a pan, she's like, no, I don't want really That's not going to. And now how do we cook our fajitas? We grill, right? And the first time I told Wendy I wanted to fry a turkey. She's, I, you know, I think she was just like, well, okay. <laughs> you can do it once, get it out of your system, and then we can go back to the way that it's supposed to be. <laughs> and now, how, how much do we like fried turkey, hon? A lot. A lot, yes. We love it. We love flavorful food. We love uh, being able to, to help our family and our friends taste our love. Sometimes Wendy will make me something and she says, it tastes better because I put love in it. And yes, it's cheesy and it's, uh, you know, but it's true. Things taste better, especially when they come from people who we love. And we experience God's love every day. How can we not help but enjoy our food, enjoy the things that we do in life and not be able to taste and see that God is good. Now, some people don't taste and see that God is good. Job, uh, <laughs> Job had some trouble tasting and seeing that God was good. In Job chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, he says, Can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt, or is there any taste in the juice of the mallow? My appetite refuses to touch them. They are as food that is loathsome to me. And Job is describing his life at this point. Food is loathsome to him. Life is loathsome to him because he could not, in his condition, taste and see that God is good. Now, he never turned his back on God. He never denied that God is who he says he is. But his lamentations throughout the book of Job certainly did not reflect a current belief that what was happening to him was good. Have you ever been in that situation where your current situation, you really have a hard time thinking of it as being good? 
I know I have. And here's Job telling his friends that life for him is tasteless. He's looking for some flavor in his life. And this morning, I want us to look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. This verse comes directly after the Beatitudes in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And it says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown and trampled under people's feet. Now, last week we talked about Jesus' disciples being the light of the world. And today we're going to look at what it means for his disciples to be the salt of the earth. And there's been a lot of discussion and a lot of debate, and I have, I've read so many things over the course of preparing this sermon about what does Jesus really mean? What does it mean to be the salt of the earth? What does it mean to say that, that salt loses its taste? And before we can answer those questions, we need to know about salt. And how many of you remember, like, seventh grade science and you learned about salt and ACL? Nobody remembers. It's a good thing I'm here. <laughs> All throughout history, the availability of salt has been pivotal to civilization. And I'm not understating this. As we can trace the first salt works back to 6000 BC in what is now China, when people would extract salt from lakes and springs and use it to preserve their meats. And what would happen is because they were preserving their meats instead of having to eat whatever they killed that day before it would spoil, they would live longer. And if they lived longer, the population would grow. Society would grow. So that those times when maybe they couldn't go out and hunt or they couldn't go out and get food, they had salt-preserved food that would sustain them until the next time they could go out. And civilization started to spread. And salt became a trading commodity. It was a very high value to the Hebrews, to the Greeks, to the Romans, and to a lot of other civilizations. They used salt as, as trade. The ancient Hebrews would use salt in their covenant ceremonies when they would indicate trust in the Lord while they were making a promise to another person. I trust that God is in this covenant. I trust that God is going to take care of both of us as we enter into this contract. The Egyptians used salt when they embalmed their dead for reasons passing understanding in that time. Nobody understood. Well, why would you want to preserve a dead body. But to the Egyptians, it was a way of expressing uh, trust in their gods that eventually that body might come back. So a lot of really uh, important religious ceremonies surrounding salt. The, the early Roman Empire, the very first early years, they actually built roads specifically just to transport salt from the salt mines to Rome. And that's all that road was for. It was important. In Africa, salt was used as currency. And slabs of rock were used as, as coins, this salt rock they would use as coins in Ethiopia. 
And Moorish merchants in the 6th century traded salt for gold, weight for weight. Can you imagine? Hey, I have a pound of salt. Give me a pound of gold. Anybody know how much gold costs these days? That would be a pretty good trade. But in the 6th century, that's how valuable salt was. In the first millennium B.C., the Celtic communities grew rich trading salt, and they salted meat, and they, and they traded this meat to, to Greece and to Rome, and they got all kinds of other things. They got money, they got wine, they got all kinds of luxurious things, and they grew their society because of salt. And some of you might not know this, but did you know that the word salary comes from the Latin word for salt? This is true. Now, it's not that people got paid their salary in salt. But what it meant was the people were saying that when you do work for me, I'm going to salt you. I am going to provide you with something of great value. And, of course, various times governments have taxed their salt, uh, which makes us all very happy, right? Salt is used as a purifier in many manufacturing operations. The manufacturing of aluminum, which is different apparently from aluminum, um, I did not know that, but it's, it's manu uh, used in manufacturing soaps, it's used in manufacturing glycerins, it's used in, as an emulsifier uh, so that uh, people can make synthetic rubber, they can put glaze on ceramics. I did not know that salt was important for ceramic glaze. And of course, salt is also used, you know, just to flavor food, I mean, you know, no big deal there, right? And now you know more about salt than you ever wanted to know. Except for this. Did you know that fertilizer is actually salt? Fertilizer is made up of salts that contain ions of ammonium and nitrate and phosphate and magnesium. All those little words that you see on the, the side of a, of a fertilizer bag if you go and buy a bag of fertilizer. Those are all salts with ions of all of these things. And when it's added to the soil in reasonable, appropriate amounts, the salt provides food and microbes for the plants to grow. Now, if you oversalt, obviously, you're going to have some problems. But in reasonable and appropriate amounts, salt gives life. Salt allows life to thrive. Jesus says that we are the salt of the earth. We are essential to the life of the world. This is what Jesus is telling us. We are essential to life. We're Jesus' disciples. It means that we are his ambassadors, we are his emissaries, we are the people who are messengers of the gospel, or we're supposed to be. And the gospel gives life. This is what Jesus is telling us. If we look at Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 to 6, we can actually get a much more accurate meaning of what this idea of being salt is. Because it could be, you know, fertilizer, it could be flavoring, it could be all of these things. But in Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 to 6, it says, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. 
so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. When we read this passage, what we come to understand is that the Apostle Paul here is not talking about salt. He's talking about wisdom. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with wisdom, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. When Jesus says that we are the salt of the earth, what he means is you are wisdom for the world. How many of you feel wise? Not many of us feel wise, right? I, I feel pretty downright dumb sometimes. And I'm starting to get that, I'm, I'm starting to get that 52-year-old thing where you're like you're looking at somebody and you're talking to them and you go up to them and you say, hey, how you doing? And, and right then you forget their name. It's just like boop, right out of your head. Anybody? No, just me. Okay. But Jesus is saying you are wisdom to the world and that sounds like a little bit of a leap. Jesus is talking about salt and saltiness and taste and all of these things. How do you get wisdom? And I'll agree that it, it might seem like I'm making this passage mean something that it's not, but if we look at the rest of Jesus' statement, it's not such a stretch. So let's look at Matthew 5.13 again. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Jesus says if, if, if salt loses its taste, it is good for nothing. Now, if you know anything about salt, you know that salt cannot lose its taste. It's salt. No matter what you do to it, it's still salt. It's a mineral. That's how it comes. Now, we can add contaminants and we can do all of those things, but salt is salt. How does it lose its taste? Well, the word for taste that's being translated here from the Greek is this word, Maranthi, and it comes from the Greek word moros. And moros means to be foolish. You are the salt of the earth. You are the wisdom of the world. You are to be wise. And if the wise becomes foolish, if it becomes contaminated by other things, it's no good. All it's good for is to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So what's this wisdom that Jesus talks about here? It's the wisdom of the gospel. It's the wisdom that he came to teach us over his three-year ministry. It's the wisdom that we read in all of the Old Testament. Our wisdom comes from God's word and God's instruction. And that instruction in Jesus' time was what we now call the Old Testament. What they would call the law and the prophets. Now, there was a common Jewish expression back in that day, and, and if you read rabbinical literature from that century, um, 
you'll see that they actually call the law and the prophets the salt and the light of the world. And last week, we talked about being the light of the world. And Jesus tells us to let the light shine and to not hide it. He's saying, let the law and the prophets shine. Don't hide what God has already shared with us. He's talking about God's word, the law. And when Jesus says that we are salt and light, he's telling us that as his disciples, we are to live lives that reflect the wisdom of the law and the prophets, the instruction of God throughout history. And if that's not enough to convince us of the real meaning of this passage, take a look at the very next thing that Jesus says after he tells us to be salt and light. In Matthew 5, 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. We've talked about Jesus being a very powerful and talented speaker. And when we read the Sermon on the Mount, sometimes we get an idea, well, maybe he's, you know, he's, he's okay, but it feels like maybe some of these things don't connect. Have you ever read the Sermon on the Mount and you say, well, what, is, what does one thing have to do with another? Or is this just like a whole string of, of thoughts that Jesus just happens to put out? But it's not. And a lot of people believe that Jesus, you know, just gives us all this moral teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. They don't even believe that Jesus is God. They don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They just say, wow, he was a really good moral teacher. Which is true. Jesus was a really good moral teacher. But they also point to this disconnectedness in the subjects in the Sermon on the Mount. And they say, well, if he really wanted to tell us something, he'd tell us a little bit clearer than what he's doing here. It's all just here's this, and then here's this, and then here's this. But the Sermon on the Mount is not a disconnected series of moral sayings. Jesus' message flows flawlessly from one idea to the next to the next, connecting them all together to give us a perfect blueprint for residency in the kingdom of God. The whole thing, all three chapters, five, six, and seven. Jesus starts by telling us all the ways that we are blessed when we exhibit the attributes of God. Poverty of spirit and mournfulness and humility or meekness before God and hunger and thirst for righteousness, God's righteousness. Then he tells us how to be righteous. How to act like God. Act mercifully. Act with a pure heart. And seek God's peace, his shalom with all people. All of that flows right through his sermon. And he follows this by telling us how we'll know we're doing it right. He says that those who do not know God will persecute us. They'll revile us. They'll spread evil lies about us just like they did to the prophets in the Old Testament, in the law and the prophets. When we display the wisdom of the law and the prophets, we will be persecuted by people who don't know God. It's just what Jesus tells us. And then he tells us we're salt and light. We are the wisdom of the law and the prophets when we live 
properly as residents of God's kingdom. And right after that, he tells us that he's here to fulfill the law and the prophets. Translation, Jesus is here to tell us what the wisdom of the law and the prophets is, including what we've gotten wrong and how to set it right. And that's the whole rest of the sermon. The whole rest of the next three chapters is Jesus telling his listeners that you've got it wrong. You are following the letter of God's law, but not the spirit of God's law. You think that you're going to get by on a technicality just because you're following the exact words, and that's not enough. Jesus says several times throughout this sermon, you have heard that it was said. And then he speaks the letter of the law. You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. Then he goes on. But I say to you, and then he tells us what you shall not murder really means. He says, if you hate your brother, you will be judged with as severe a judgment as if you murdered him. And when we hear those words of Jesus, what we start to realize, if we want to, is that God's law isn't about the words. It's about how those words change our hearts. And if the words are not changing our hearts, if the words are not changing the way that we relate to other people, then we're not really his disciples. Jesus shows us the wisdom that we are to display to a world that does not know God. You are the salt of the earth. You are the wisdom of God to the world. And you're the light of the world now that you have this wisdom. Now that you know what it is that God truly wants. You gotta tell people. You gotta show people what it is to be a resident of the kingdom of God. And how do we do things? We walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. We let our speech be gracious. There's a lot of ungracious speech out there today by Christians. We're to let our speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, seasoned with the wisdom of how God meant things to be so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Do you know what that means? You have to get to know each person. You actually have to go up to people and say, Hi! You have to get to know who they are. Because only by knowing who they are can you draw on the wisdom of what it's supposed to be to live a life for God and be able to share that with them. 
not just by words, but by actions. We walk in wisdom. We walk in the spirit of the law as Jesus instructs in his sermons. And we take the words of the prophet Micah absolutely to heart. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? This is what we are called to. This whole passage in Micah, and we take this passage and we say, oh, that's a really nice passage, and we make bumper stickers and t-shirts and everything out of it. Do you know what Micah's talking about here? Micah is talking about the people of Israel. The people of Israel who say, we make sacrifices. We do everything that God tells us to do, and we're still in trouble. And Micah says, God doesn't want your sacrifice. Especially not if you don't even know what you're sacrificing for. God would rather have justice and mercy and humility than a thousand rams and a thousand goats. A thousand, thousand sacrifices. God would rather you act justly and seek justice for other people. To love mercy. Another translation of love mercy is to do kindness. Be just to people and be kind to them. And walk humbly with your God. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, these are the things we ought to be doing. And if we're doing them, man, can we taste and see that God is good. We can taste it. We can see it. We can hear it. We can feel it. And we can taste it with everything that's in us. What do you thank God for this morning? Do you thank God that he wrote a bunch of words down? Or do you thank God that he told us how to be residents of the kingdom of God? Because I'm thankful that Jesus came to teach us that it's not just the words, it's the attitude. Just like Kathy said in the children's story this morning, it's our attitude. What is your attitude toward God? You pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you That's all. We thank you. We thank you for the breath of life. We thank you that you created us. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you provide for us, that you protect us. We thank you for your justice and your mercy. 
We thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to give us wisdom, to tell us who we are supposed to be as residents of your kingdom and as heirs to you. Father, I pray that we continue to find the strength, that we continue to find the wisdom and the courage to live kingdom lives, not just here in this building, but everywhere we go. Father, forgive us for those things that we do that don't show justice, that don't show kindness. Help us to be better. Help us to taste your goodness. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. It is Thanksgiving week. As you go out to your jobs, to your schools for one or two days this week, Share the wisdom of God through your words, through your actions. Share them with your families. I think sometimes the hardest people to share our faith with are our families. Live the life that Jesus has called us to live. Show our families, show our friends, our co-workers, our fellow students who God is. God bless you this week.